needs. And we pray that you'd help us to give generously because all that we have is yours. And now bless Pastor Tom also as he shares your word from, 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 from Daniel's prophecy with us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning again, First Baptist family here. It's good to be here. And today we're coming to the final chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. This Daniel, probably one of the greatest human beings that's ever lived on the planet by many, many accounts. He not only was a, a very, very godly man, he was a, a great man, served as prime minister to multiple administrations and two totally different empires. That's the only person in human history, to my knowledge, who's ever done that. I'm sure there's never been another person. He's one of the most competent leaders the world has ever seen, one of the most godly people the world has ever seen. And uh, in every respect, this man is, I guess you could call him Daniel the Great, because he certainly fit that category. Daniel, uh, Daniel, uh, if you go through the chapters we've looked at, in chapter 1, you see this man, Daniel, as a young man, 15 years of age probably, who was brought into another country, kidnapped from his own land, and they tried to enculturate him into the life and the religion of Babylon, but he refused to compromise his convictions. He is a man of incredible, incredible integrity as a young man. And then he's a man who, who trusted in God's competence. Remember, he was put in a life and death situation in chapter 2 where this crazy King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he forgot his dream. And he said he's going to kill all of these wise men, his counselors, if they can't not just interpret his dream but tell him what his dream was. Now, no, one in, no, no human being can do that. Daniel knew that. And he went to the king and says, no human being can do this, but there is a God and I trust him. And God revealed the king's dream to Daniel. And of course, then he also interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Here's a man who had implicit trust in the competence of God. And he demonstrated that by the way he lived his life. The next chapter, chapter 3, we, in, we see Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were asked to compromise. They were asked to bow down before idols. And they said, we don't do that. We will not do that. We would rather face death than to disobey our God. And it's probably one of the main texts, if not the main text in the whole Bible about civil disobedience. We are called by God to obey our governments, but there is a limit, there is a line that any government would cross where we must obey God rather than man. That's what the apostles said in the New Testament. And then in the fourth chapter, we find Daniel serving the hound of heaven, the name, another name for God, because God loved Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful man, this egotistical man, this man that, that was in many ways quite a bad man, God still loved him. And Daniel was used to interpret the king's dream, which said that the king was going to go nuts, which he did. But in becoming crazy, he eventually came to know the living God because Daniel was the servant of the hound of heaven. But Nebuchadnezzar, inasmuch as he was the one who responded to God, one of his successors, Belshazzar, did not respond. He was an arrogant, arrogant man. He had no reason to be arrogant because he wasn't a very good king. 
But that's the passage where the handwriting on the wall took place and Daniel interpreted the handwriting on the wall basically saying to the king, you're done. God's finished with your arrogance. Your kingdom is over. And that very day, his kingdom was over. And then chapter 6, we find Daniel facing the ultimate test. Would he retain his convictions and pray as he normally did or would he be willing to face the lion's den? He chose the lion's den rather than to compromise his relationship with God. What a man. That's the part of the book of Daniel that most of us know pretty well. But then you get to the second half. The second half of Daniel is mainly prophecies. They're things that, they're, they're incidents and, and dreams and visions that God gave to Daniel and other people about the future. So first of all, God gave a, a vision of four different beasts, which told of the empires that would follow the, the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persian Empire, then the Greek, and then the Roman Empires. And then, in some of these prophecies, Daniel, speaking from, for God, starts to paint a portrait of, of evil. What does evil look, leadership look like? Something that we should be attuned to. Because one day, the, the epitome of evil is going to take place. And as you know, if you know anything about human governments, oftentimes leaders are the epitome of evil, Hitler being a very good example of that. In chapter 9, we find one of the most beautiful prayers in all the Bible where Daniel prays for his people and confessing his own sin and the sin of his nation. It's a marvelous prayer. And because of that prayer, God answers Daniel's prayer with giving him the bedrock of what the whole future for the nation of Israel will look like in 77s or 70 weeks. That's the future for the history of Israel. And then Daniel, in, in chapter 10, has his, starts his last vision, which is a vision that God gave to Daniel and God gives to very few people who have ever lived on the planet. God opens up the heavens and lets us see what is taking place beyond this world that most of us have no clue about. There's a cosmic battle raging, and Daniel was given a glimpse of it, and he couldn't get out of bed. If you think you know about spiritual warfare and you can handle it, you're nuts. You aren't half the person that Daniel, you're not one hundredth the person, you're not one thousandth the person that Daniel was. And when he saw the reality of spiritual warfare, it undid him. God allows very few people that glimpse. He allowed it to Elisha, to, to, of course, our Lord Jesus knew everything about it. Paul, very few people. But it's a reality. It's a scary reality, one that we are not to dabble in, but it's real. We have to deal with it. And then, last week, we looked at this incredible passage in chapter 11 in which God gives 135 prophecies in one chapter, all of which we know historically that we can verify have come true. And it's, uh, again, show us that God does know the future, and he knows it with great specificity. But now in chapter 12 today, we're going to get come to the end. Uh, that's an easy title for it, because now Daniel is going to open our eyes to what will take place in the end. By the end, I mean the end of time as we know it. And as you might know, time as we know it ends biblically with what we call the tribulation. And at the end of chapter um, 11, toward the end, around chapter, verse 36, Daniel, in his prophecy, has been talking about this person that would come, and we know him now from history to be Antiochus IV Epiphanes, 
He is a type of a person much, much more powerful and much worse. And this person who is introduced at the end of chapter 11 is probably the Antichrist. And it's the rise of the Antichrist, and I speak of the Antichrist. Jesus said there are going to be many Antichrists, small a, but there's going to be one Antichrist. And the Antichrist will be part of what is called by scholars the unholy trinity. The trinity, of course, is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The unholy trinity is Satan, who counterfeits the Father, the Antichrist, who counterfeits the Lord Jesus Christ, and the false prophet, who counterfeits the Holy Spirit. The evil one's work is to counterfeit everything of God, and it's going to become so intense that if you read in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist will receive a fatal wound and will recover. What is he going to even counterfeit? The resurrection of Jesus. Fatal means, last I knew, my dictionary means you die. He's going to even counterfeit the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's how, how incredibly intense the counterfeiting will be. And Jesus said, it is going to be so intense that if God did not prevent this, even all the elect, all of us Christians would be deceived. It will be that startling. That period of time is called the tribulation, and this is how verse 36 begins. Not 11, 11, 36, but just chapter 11, verse 36. He had been talking about this man we can historically um, identify as Antiochus IV, but now he moves to someone bigger and worse. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. So now Daniel is going to be given a vision by God of this great evil leader who will usher into the tribulation. Now this is back to chapter 9. In chapter 9 you have what's called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Bible scholars say these, this verse here is the bedrock of prophecy for the whole Bible. It is this verse that now Jesus comes back to in what's called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and that the book of Revelation then expands massively. Here Daniel is describing 500 years before Jesus the last week of Jewish history. By the last week, I mean the last seven years. He, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant. It will begin with a covenant or a, uh, a peace treaty with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, three and a half years later, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Those who look at this event, this series of events called the Tribulation, can identify a few clear, clear markers. Revelation fills in the gaps. It begins with the emergence of someone who is the Antichrist. We've had many Antichrists up to history to, to this day, but the Antichrist has not yet appeared, at least so far as we know. 
that the beginning of the tribulation will be the signing of a covenant, some kind of peace treaty that some suggest signal that it guarantees by some great world leader the peace of Israel and allows them to rebuild their temple. That's what many people suggest. But then in the middle of that time period, he'll break that covenant and all hell will break loose for the Jewish people, including what's called the abomination of desolation. Remember what Antiochus did? He established a, a, a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He forbade the people from worshiping God. He sacrificed pigs on the altar. He did all kinds of abominable things to the Jewish people. The Antichrist will do that times 10. Much, much worse. In fact, he'll set himself up as a god. After three and a half years where the wrath of God is poured out on the earth, then you've got what's called the Battle of Armageddon, which God ultimately will win, of course, at the time of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's called the second coming. Um, Bible scholars call it the parousia, the coming of Jesus. And then, of course, that will usher in what's known as the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. So this is kind of what the Bible says at the end of chapter 7, it talks about, uh, at the end of chapter 11, rather, about what's going to happen in the future. And now chapter 12, as Daniel completes his book, he's going to tell us some things about what will happen at the end. Here it goes. First of all, he speaks of a deliverance. Here's how chapter 12 begins. At that time, what time is this? during this period of tribulation. At that time, Michael. Michael is the, the guardian angel of the people of Israel. That's his role. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, those are Daniel's people, the Jewish people, he will arise. There will be a time of great distress such as had not happened from the beginning of nations until then. This is the time of incredible, incredible, incredible evil, which will make the Holocaust look small. This will be worse than that. But at that time, your people, that's the Jewish people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Now, the obvious question here is, what's the book? Now, probably when it speaks of the book here, um, the book that's referring to here is probably Jewish people who are Jewish people who have put their trust in the Messiah, in God and in the Messiah, post-Jesus, in the time of Jesus. Before the time of Jesus, you had many Jewish people who are, de are clearly in heaven, but they didn't know who the Messiah was. Now we know who the Messiah is. It is Jesus. Some people suggest this book is the name that God, a book that God has with the name of every single human being who is actually righteous in God's eyes. Not because of our own righteousness, but because we have received the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a book like that. It says all these people will be delivered. What does delivered mean? Well, it doesn't mean they're not going to die. <laughs> Because this will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of time until then. So many people will be killed, but the deliverance must be of some other kind. Of course, in this case, it would be eternal deliverance. God's people will suffer mightily during the tribulation, but God will ultimately deliver those who trust in him. That is, those whose names are written in the book. God will ultimately deliver them. 
Now, um, the obvious question for us, though probably the book that it speaks of here is a book in which the Jewish people who trust in the Messiah's names are written. But God has, uh, the Bible speaks of other books, books of life, hopefully in which our names are written. But more about that later. So first of all, Daniel says there will be a deliverance, and then there will be resurrections. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that there are multiple resurrections spoken of in the Bible. Obviously, there's the re resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the Bible says there will be a resurrection of Christians. Then there will be a of Christians who have died in Christ will be resurrected. It talks about there will be a resurrection of Old Testament saints. And then the Bible speaks about the fact that there will be a resurrection of every human being who has ever lived. Everyone will be resurrected who has ever lived on this planet. Here's how Daniel saw it. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, when you look at that verse, you might think that's not much, but it's unique. It's the only place in the whole Old Testament that crystal clear speaks about the resurrection of all people. It's the only place in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you find many such places. Now, in the Old Testament, you find many verses in the Psalms with Abraham and with the prophets that speak about the resurrection of the righteous. But this verse is the only clear one that speaks about that all people will be resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15 is the main chapter in the New Testament that speaks of the resurrections. But here, all people will be resurrected. Now, in the Old Testament, here are the words of Job. Job probably wrote these words 2,000 B.C., 4,000 years ago, the oldest book of the Bible. The insight he had into the resurrection was stunning. Here's what he wrote. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Whew, that's a stunning phrase. I mean, that's, that's stunning to think that Job had this kind of insight that 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before the, his Redeemer actually came, he said, I know that one day I will with my eyes, after my flesh is gone, I will have a resurrection body and with my eyes I will see my Redeemer. Job said that. I don't know if he knew what he was talking about. We know now. Now, the, that is Job speaking about his resurrection. But there's another resurrection that Revelation tells us about, and this is called the Great White Throne Judgment. Sometimes Christians write songs about being at the Great White Throne. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be at the Great White Throne. Look at what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. 
and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Um, I don't know if you know that, that all human beings will be resurrected. And when human beings are resurrected, there will be only one criteria that will determine our eternal destiny. Only one. And that one criteria is our works. It's the only criteria. And I mean for you and for everyone. The only thing that matters is our works. How have we done on the scales of right and wrong? Now there's a catch. You can stand before God who knows everything. But here there are two problems. One, in order to make it, you have to be perfect. If there's anything less, if you've ever committed any sin, you can't go to heaven. Why? You destroy the place. It's impossible. So here's how it is. You have to be perfect to get in. But all judgment, by the way, will be based on works. Now, you either have to be perfect, and no human being has a prayer there. Or here's another option. There was someone who was perfect. And he not only was perfect, his works were perfect. And his worth is worth 10 trillion gazillion because he is God. And he says, I will give you my righteousness. So you can stand before God. Everyone will stand before God. And we will be judged by our works. And you can either stand before God and say, okay, I'll take my chances. Here's how I've done. Idiot, please don't, please. Or you can say, I, I plead the righteousness of Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. I have no righteousness on my own. I will not stand before God on my righteousness. I will stand before God pleading the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I will stand behind the cross. God says, oh yeah, I got your name written. You written, I knew it. You're one of those people that you knew who you were and you knew who I am. And you've come to know who Jesus is. And you've pled his righteousness alone. All will be resurrected. And the basis of our judgment after resurrection will be works. You can choose your works. Or you can choose Christ's works. If you choose your own works, you've got two massive problems. One, well, I'm going to say you're an idiot, but... You are, you are. I mean, I'm, but the first person thing is you're dishonest. You're fundamentally dishonest because any honest person knows what you're really like. You know all those things that we've done that no one else knows. You're dishonest and you're arrogant. You refuse to bow the knee before a holy God who knows everything. And you refuse to receive a gift that you know you don't deserve, which takes a lot of humility because you know you don't deserve it. There'll be resurrections. 
And Daniel, the clearest verse in the Old Testament says there will be a, there will be a, a resurrection. There will be resurrections. And everyone will be resurrected and they will have to be judged according to what they have done. Your righteousness or Jesus's. And now you have a choice. Here's what he said. Those who are wise, now you, you get to choose now. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever but you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Here's the choice now. You can either be wise or you can be pseudo-wise. Wise people realize that you, got, you can shine and lead other people to righteousness. By the way, remember what Jesus said about shining? He said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus said. Now, those who are wise will shine. Then they will give their lives to leading other people to righteousness, to the righteous one. And, as Daniel said, they will Take the words of this scroll. Now, in the ancient times, when a contract was, um, uh, when it was put into place, they'd have two documents. One that was sealed and put into a, a safe deposit box of some kind, and then one that was used to show people that this was actually enacted. And God says, you're, you're what you've written, Daniel, is like that scroll. It's going to be preserved for all eternity. The word of God is eternal. But it's something that people need to cling to. So it seems to me, God says, here's what the wise do. The wise shine. The wise lead people to righteousness. And the wise cling to the word of God. Those are the wise. Now what's the alternative? The alternative is to search and wander aimlessly, looking for knowledge, but never finding it. And when you do that, you probably won't shine, you won't lead people to righteousness, and Scripture will not be your source of authority. Shine, lead people to righteousness, and take seriously the Word of God. Well, Daniel now is going to be dealt with the final um, words from the angels, and they're going to speak about the timing of all of this. And here's what happens. Then I, Daniel, looked... And there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. That's the Tigris River. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by the one who lives forever and ever, saying, it will be for time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things were completed. Jesus was asked just before he died about what was going to happen in the end by his disciples. And Jesus said, it's, it's, you won't know the time. I'm not going to give you the specific time. I'll give you events that will take place. But here it's probably speaking about the last three and a half years of the tribulation, God says two things. One, 
there will be a pretty long period of time in which these days of distress will take place, but it will end. It doesn't go on forever. So there will be a time to it. And then Daniel finally gets to the end of his words in chapter 12. And he said, well, what's the outcome of all of it? Here's how Daniel says it. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of all this? Here he's, he's, give, he's written all these things that God had him write in his book, and now he gets to the very end. He says, okay, what's the outcome? What's going to happen at the end? Here it goes. Go your way, Daniel, because this doesn't apply to you yet. <laughs> your words are closed up and sealed until the end of time. What you have been given, Daniel, is not for your time. It's for the future. Many will be purified made spotless and refined. But the wicked will continue to be wicked. So people, there will be a dividing line. Some people will take the words that you've written and they will be powerful in their lives and they will go down the path of following God. And others who reject this will go on their merry way as well. None of the wicked will understand. But those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished, in the middle of the tribulation, and the abomination of causes desolation is set up. There will be 1,290 days. It's roughly three and a half years. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. Read many commentaries. Nobody knows what in the world he's talking about, nor do I. As for you, Daniel, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of your days, you will rise, and you'll receive your inheritance. There's the end. That's how it ends. How, then, should we live? That's the ultimate question. I guess I would just end with a, a, a few uh, questions. First question is this. Is my name in the book? That's probably the most important question. Is my name in the book? Well, Paul made it real succinct. He said this. He said, this is the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then Paul said this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I didn't write that. God did. The good news is that Jesus died for our sins. He paid the penalty we deserved, and he was raised from the dead. And if you believe in your heart that Jesus is your Lord, and that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. God wrote that. Then your name is in the book. Then... Is your trust, 100%, and I don't mean 99, is your trust 100% in the righteousness of the Redeemer or in your own righteousness? Do you really believe you can stand before God and proclaim your own righteousness? Or will you stand before God and proclaim the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross? Where is your trust? Is the second question. The third question is this. In light of that, and I assume that most of us, hopefully all of us in this place, have placed our trust in Jesus. If we have, 
Are you wise? Are you shining? Are you bringing others to righteousness? And are you clinging to the sealed word of God? Are you wise? Fourthly, are you willing to wait for God's timing? One of the greatest ways God molds our character is by causing us to wait. Will you wait for God's timing? He has a lot of patience. He's long-suffering. And last, will I let God purify me or will I putrefy? You can be either one. Daniel's one of the greatest men who's ever lived. Do I want to be like him? I'm going to end with a, something I made up. And so don't take this for worth anything. But it's, hopefully it's interesting. You know, if you read the Bible, and even the book of Daniel, it speaks about that, uh, that God will give us an inheritance. And the Bible speaks in a number of cases about believers getting rewards. And people wonder, what in the world is that like? What kind of rewards will that be? Well, let me give you a scenario that I think is plausible, but I made it up. So The Bible does speak about God giving people crowns, crowns of righteousness, the crown of the martyr. There's an, a crown for elders who serve faithfully God's precious church. Here's how I think it happens. When we're, die, when we're dead and the, the millennium is over and, and the new heavens and the new earth have ushered in, our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Holy Spirit are there. And I think about the first 10 million years are going to simply be Jesus telling stories. What he's going to do is he's going to call forward people one by one and they'll stand in his presence and Jesus is going to tell their story. What is he going to tell? He's going to tell every single step of faith they ever took. And he's especially going to tell the story of the things that people did for Christ alone that no one else knows. Only God, only Jesus knew. And he knows everything. Because he's kept a record of every single faith, step of faith we've ever taken. And guess what he's kept no record of? Our sins. Zero. Not a one. All he knows is every single step of faith we've taken. He's going to call my buddy Stephen. Stephen steps forward. Stephen, my buddy. Look at his neck. Look at his body. Bruises all over that body. He gave his life for me. And as Jesus tells that story, everyone's going to go nuts. Wow! 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 And remember, there's no sin. No envy. No jealousy. All we do is say, wow! And then he's going to tell some of your stories because every one of us who's a true believer do things that no one knows. Only Jesus He's going to tell your story. And you get to stand next to Jesus as he tells what you did, how you shined, how you led others to righteousness, how you clung to his word. Guess what's going to happen after he tells your story? He's going to take a crown and put it on your head. That's what he's going to do. And then after 10 million years, as after he's told the story of every person, and we're just thrilled Everyone in, in concert is going to take those crowns. We're going to take them off our heads and throw them at the feet of Jesus. Because every one of us will know, Jesus, we did this for you. You alone are worthy of every one of these crowns. And guess what Jesus is going to do? He's going to take all those crowns and bring them to the Father and say, Father, this is what we did. This it's worth it. Look at billion people. 
hopefully billions, billions of people now for eternity, people whose lives were purchased by the cross. Let's enjoy eternity. Have fun. Let's pray. Oh, that will be glory. Oh, you got a great plan, Heavenly Father. But my prayer is that no one would leave this place today without your Holy Spirit tugging at their heart regarding their righteousness. May you bring us all to the cross. Because when we stand before you one day, we want to have every single bit of ourselves covered by the cross of Jesus and his righteousness, clothed in his righteousness alone, so that faultless we can stand before your throne. To that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. Oh, I love to quote this benediction. It's from the book of Jude. This is Jesus' brother. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and who can enable you to stand before God's glorious presence blameless with great joy.